Today's guest is a best-selling author, podcast host, former Navy SEAL, and the founder of the Warrior Dog Foundation. Mike Ritland served 12 years as a Navy SEAL, including during Operation Iraqi Freedom. It was there after witnessing an explosive detection canine save a group of Marines that Mike first became passionate about canines. He would later go on to found the Warrior Dog Foundation, a charity that cares for retired working dogs. He also operates the Elite Canine Training Company, Trico's International, and is the founder of Team Dog Performance Dog Food. Mike is the New York Times bestselling author of the books Team Dog, Navy Seal Dogs, and Un-America. He also hosts his very own podcast called Mike Drop Podcast. You can follow him on Instagram at M-R-I-T-L-A-N-D. That's M Ritland on Instagram. And you can see more about his work and everything that he is doing. And you can also check out his apparel on MikeRitland.com. All right, Mike, welcome to the Reborn Podcast. Man, it is such a pleasure to have you on with me. Um, how's it going? Are you in Texas? I'm good. I, I appreciate you having me on. And yes, I'm uh, just outside of Dallas. So. Ha- have you always been in Texas? Is that where you're from? I'm originally from Iowa. Um, after I got out of the military, I came came to the Dallas area. So I've been here for about 12 years now. But uh, you know, it feels like home at this point, for sure. Yeah, I think I think Texas is a great place to be. Yeah, for sure. It's it a is. great state, a great state, probably one of my favorite states uh, in the in the U.S. Um, yeah. Can you give the listeners a little bit uh, who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. So uh, I spent twelve and a half years in the SEAL teams. Uh, at the tail end of my time there, as when I really started to get heavily involved into into working dogs, having grown up around birds dogs and, and gotten into hunting dogs, you know, for a good portion of my life, it, it just kind of was a, a natural fit, I guess, of uh, c- combining the things that I was passionate about with what I had done for a living as an adult. And uh, as I as I got out of the Navy, I started my own uh, canine training company and then came back as uh, one of the multi-purpose canine uh, training or trainers rather on the West Coast. Um, at around that same time, uh, or actually just before that, I started the Warrior Dog Foundation, uh, which is a an organization that basically acts as a sanctuary for any retired uh, or soon-to-be-retired working dogs where the, the circumstances are such they can't be adopted out to their handler or to a former unit member, et cetera. And so we take them to avoid them being euthanized. And, and our goal is primarily to rehabilitate them and, and either repurpose them if they're young enough to to still work or get them into a more normal living environment, um, you know, for, for the rest of their life. Uh, fast forward a few years uh, and just kind of continuing within the canine space, primarily focusing on on working dogs, whether it's police, military, or, or you know, things of that nature. I started uh, getting into personal protection dogs and then more into the pet dog space in terms of training and, and food and treats and uh, and an online training site and collars, leashes, crates, you know, things of that nature, just more, more of the product based stuff for, for your average everyday dogs. And so, um, and then, uh, fa- fast forwarding even further, started my own podcast, the Mike Drop podcast uh, a few years ago and, and have been doing that. So 
uh, I still do kind of all those same things. It's it's the the podcast, the foundation, personal protection dogs, and then the online training, dog food treats and, and products and stuff. So that's that's amazing. You have so many things that you're doing. I, I would argue too many things, frankly. I, it's uh, I, I've I've definitely learned the hard way the um, the importance of a saying no and b you know kind of triaging or prioritizing, you know, the things that you're doing, there's a lot of good ideas out there, mm-hmm. um, you know, but you can only do so many and do them well. And so I, I have gone into or, or gotten into trouble before where I try to do too many things and end up half-assing all of them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I've kind of had to take a step back and, and I'm doing, you know, for sure, as much as I can handle now, I, I, I couldn't add anything to that plate. That's for sure. Yeah. So your love for canines, you said you grew up in Iowa. Uh, Iowa, yep. Good good place to fly over and be from. But Yeah. So you did a lot of like you did hunting and stuff with with bird dogs or how how was your childhood? Uh so the childhood was uh very leave it to beaver like in terms of the family. We got a family dog, it was Black Lab, and uh and we had um you know kind of a sense of of uh community as it relates to the working dogs where we had uh you know within the the town I'm from just a lot of different, you know, friends of mine that they would kind of go with their, their dads and and things of that nature where they would, um, they would do, do hunting exercises and hunting training and and bird dog retrieval training and things like that. Uh, you know, and and that's kind of where I first got introduced to it and, and really fascinated by it. So whenever you went into the military, uh, was it right away? Did you try to latch on to the, the canine program or like wh- when did you when did you find out that you were like oh, I like I really want to get into canine work or did it choose yeah. you or did you choose it uh, I mean I, I chose it for sure I would say to answer your first question no that the canine programs actually didn't exist when I first came in and even for the first uh, en- entire enlistment and then some that I was in the in the SEAL teams and so it wasn't until after 9-11 where the kind of the thought process or the the, the understood value of having explosive detection dogs and apprehension dogs augmenting our guys doing what we were doing really even was a thing. The, the community used them and, and relied on them uh, to a, a pretty heavy extent in Vietnam. But after Vietnam, they, they disbanded all the canine units and didn't use them again until, you know, a little ways after 9-11. And so, um, do, as do, you that, know, do you know why that was like why they stopped using the canines? Uh, I, I mean, I have a, a theory or a hunch, mm-hmm. I guess. I, I don't have an official position as to why the Navy did it. But the to me, it, it kind of makes sense from a, a big picture standpoint, budget-wise and, and maintaining-wise, is that if you're in, engaged in sustained armed combat, it makes sense to, to have those programs, you know, or police departments or military units that are doing those, those very specific things all the time. It, it makes sense to, to maintain that capability. Um, as you, you well know, having two dogs yourself, the amount of time and and effort and and knowledge, frankly, that you need to be able to just keep them at the level that they're at is, is significant. And so, you know, as a, let's say a a commander or an admiral or or what have you looking at kind of the line items of, of what's taking money, you know, you've got body armor and new sniper rifles and maritime training, and, you know, you've got all these different things that you have to be good at. The dog programs are, are a pretty big resource grabber, um, you know, and, and it takes guys, it takes money, it takes 
you know, a, a fair bit of bandwidth from a community to, to maintain that. And I think my assumption is, is that they looked at it as, uh, as a very simple budgetary thing where it's like, Hey, we're not in an, in a sustained armed conflict. We, we don't need to, to keep these dog programs going. And, and so they just got rid of them. That, that's my, my assumption. But mm-hmm. so it, it was a, le- a steep learning curve, you know, in the community as a whole, you know, it took a few years to really kind of get on on step, uh, you know, and and get fully integrated to where they could use dogs into into you know the the SEAL teams and into platoons and things like that. So uh, it wasn't until I was in Iraq, and and it wasn't even a SEAL dog because again we didn't even have them. <clears throat> excuse me, at that time, uh, there was a group of Marines in in the town that we were in that that had a a, a bomb dog with them, and it saved a, a group of their guys' lives. And for me, that was the light switch moment where. I was like, you know, we've, we've been in that same scenario. I don't know how many times and never had a dog with us. And and so it just kind of clicked. And at that point I just couldn't get enough of it. And so I spent the next, you know, several years kind of learning everything I could about them. And then ultimately, um, as I was getting ready to get out, I, I or before I was, <coughs> excuse me, wanted to, <coughs> wanted to get out, I got Valley fever while I was a, an advanced training instructor, right after I got back from Iraq and lost about 40% of my lung capacity. And, uh, you know, so that, that was a big kind of pivot point that was unintended or, or, uh, you know, not expected, not planned. And and so at that time it was kind of a, um, you know, fork in the road for me professionally. Mm-hmm. And, and I was offered a, a position as a handler on the West coast, or, you know, I could, I could get out and start my own company and it was a tough decision, but I, you know, with my lungs being in the shape that they were and not knowing if I would actually be an asset or a liability to, to my teammates, I decided, uh, you know, I could make a bigger impact and one that I could control if I get out and start my own company and, and do that. So that's, uh, that's what I did. What is a Valley fever? It's a, it's a fungal lung infection, um, that it's called coccidia mycosis that it, it basically, uh, it's a spore that lives in very arid climates that if you breathe it in, it spreads through your lungs, kind of the way mold would, would grow on bread. Uh, and everywhere that it grows, it scars that lung tissue permanently and, and you lose that. And so I was out at, at Nyland uh, in Eastern California, where we do a lot of our desert training and, um, and, and I got it out there, but uh, because we were out there, you know, shooting 84 millimeter shoulder fired rockets and doing explosives and, and all that stuff. And I was out there for, you know, six weeks at a time. Um, when my lungs and my chest started hurting real bad, uh, myself and kind of everybody, including uh, Balboa Naval Hospital assumed that that it was blast lung or something to do with that, and so it took them a few days to run run blood work and uh, do X rays and EKGs and stuff to determine it, that it had nothing to do with that and that it was it was that. And so I I was on convalescent leave as a as an instructor for almost nine months. Uh, where I didn't go to work for nine months. I got down to about 140 pounds. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know they they actually tried to medically retire me, and I I just asked that they not do that and, and see if I could, you know, go somewhere where I could, uh, you know, let my lungs heal a little bit and have a better plan than, than none. Mm-hmm. And so the two master chiefs worked the deal and, and I went to, went to buds and, and was a buds instructor, got my degree while I was there and then got, got everything set up to get out and, and start my own company. But, wow. How was it transitioning out of the military to starting your own company? Was it, did you have a pretty clear vision of, of your direction, where you wanted to go and, and what you wanted to do. And and what year, what year was this? So it was right at the end of 2008. Um, mm-hmm. So I was in from 96 to 08. And, uh, you know, for me, it was, it was actually 
pretty straightforward. I know, you know, there's one thing I've talked to, you know, and interviewed a lot of guys that really struggled and you see a lot of veterans kind of struggle. And I think, you know, it, it's the losing your identity as it relates to that, that part of your life and, and what you, you identify as, as a professional soldier and, and things of that nature that, that are really hard for a lot of guys to let go. Um, I think I was just really, really fortunate in that what I was transitioning from and, and to was similar enough to where I, I didn't have that that feeling of losing that. You know, I was still working with SEALs and, and dogs and police departments and SWAT teams and, and customs and border patrol, you know, guys and, you know, and, and doing sexy dog stuff, getting in bite suits and diving out of windows and, and doing carjackings and, and things like that. And, and so because I was still doing something that I, that I really enjoyed and was so closely related uh, and it was my own business and, and I kind of had the the ownership and the responsibility to be able to put on my shoulders and really give me purpose, which I think is where most people um, not fail, but where they, where they lose that, that sense of identity is they don't have something that they're really passionate about and, and feel a sense of purpose that they're doing. So I, I felt a very high, high level sense of purpose as well as I really enjoyed what I was doing. And it was kind of, it was very closely related. So for me, it was not a tough transition at all. Uh, I mean, it was stressful in terms of the entrepreneur part, which I know you can certainly identify with, but, uh, but again, it just kind of motivated me to, to work hard. And, and because it was all me, you know, that's not working for somebody else. Uh, it, it kind of made it easy to, to work hard and, and really focus on all that. Do you think a part of your, your love and like the canine world, I'm just asking this because I, I know how it is having two Belgian Malinois, but do you think like one of the reasons why it attracted you to the canine world was just because it's challenging? Like, I, you know, I think going through the teams, like you were always challenged, you were challenged through the budget training, you were challenged through deployments, you were, you know, challenged to, to continue to, to grow, like, you know, within your career path of being in the military. Um, do you, do you think that one of the reasons like why you love the canine world so much is because it's challenging? I think there's for sure an element of that. You know, if you compare them to to most other breeds, there is, I think, an, an inherent level of challenge that, that exceeds other breeds. Having said that, I think there's enough parallels to where, uh, you know, there's enough similarities to where even some other completely non-working breeds can be really, really challenging depending mm-hmm. on what the, the behavioral issue is. But for me, I think, I don't think, I know that, that, there are so many parallels and similarities between what makes a really good driven working dog, a good driven working dog, and what makes a good SEAL candidate or SEAL operator, a good candidate or operator, that that, that was probably the biggest, biggest thing is that, you know, it's very difficult to select and find all of the different attributes and traits that you need to do the type of work that these dogs do. And, and similarly, like as the BUDS instructor saying, how difficult it is to find, you know, even in a group of say 200 young men that are motivated, that are in good shape, that volunteered to do it, that, that you know, that stopped everything that, that, that they want to do and put every other aspect of their life on hold to come be a SEAL, still decide, screw this, I quit, um, you know, and only have, you know, 17 or 20 guys out of that 200 actually make it. It's it's kind of that same way, you know, we'll do buy trips to, to Holland or, or other parts of Europe and you know, maybe look at 120 to 200 dogs in a, in a 10 day to two week period and find three or four of them that are legit what, what we're looking for, you know? So, um, I, I think just because there's, there's such a parallel there of, of, of heart and determination and will to succeed and, and forward, 
forwardness that exists in those dogs that I just really, I really appreciate all those qualities because of, of I think my experience in the teams. But. Yeah. I, I think that's so cool. I've always, there's been a few other people that I've talked to that they do the same thing. They go overseas and select yeah. dogs for like a, you know, to bring them down the pipeline and I don't need any more dogs. These two are, one is actually yeah. enough, but two is like definitely yeah. at my capacity. But I hope yeah. at some point in my life that I could experience what it's like to go over there and to see all the dogs. And I'm sure it's probably pretty gnarly. Um, but then to be like, that's, that's my person. I, or that's my dog. And I want him to come, come back. Um, I think that would be just such a crazy experience to go over there where like all the, where they do all the breeding. Um, and, uh, so whenever, um, what, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Like, what is your, like, what is it about canines that, that you're so passionate about? So for, for me at this point, you know, it, there's been a, a significant paradigm shift in what used to be that purpose every morning versus now. And I would say, you know, back when I first got started, it was all so related. It was, you know, military police guys' lives are on the line. So I felt a sense of urgency and, and purpose to to try to, to prepare or, or train these dogs to the highest level possible because there's, you know, countrymen of mine who, who may depend on that dog with their life. And, and that's certainly not something that I'm going to sleep in on or, uh, or take for granted or, or sneeze at now. Similarly, it, it's almost become kind of full circle. And now it's more about the dogs themselves um, because the pet dog uh, or, or mainstream kind of dog industry, there's so much crap, whether it's shitty food or, or terrible training or, you know, just a miscommunication uh, component that, that exists between most dog owners and their dogs. Ultimately, what ends up happening is is you've got, you know, uneducated owners feeding shitty food, um, you know, and, and not doing right by their dogs and the dogs suffer. They're miserable. They end up having behavioral issues and then they end up in pounds and either getting abandoned or, or euthanized. And, you know, when I started looking at um, some of the statistics of, you know, 3.8 million uh, uh, you know, dogs that are surrendered to, to shelters every year uh, and and combining that with the euthanasia rate, uh, which is a little over 800,000 in most cases, that's over 2,000 dogs every day that are put to sleep, many of which uh, really shouldn't be. Um, you know, not not all of them. Some dogs, just like with people, are, are crazy and have bad wiring and, and, you know, or really, really thin nerves or what have you. And they've got, you know, some genetics at play. But most times they're inadvertently uh, shaped behaviors that, that we taught the dogs that we didn't even realize were, we were teaching them and don't want them to have, uh, you know, and, and then it ends up becoming such a, a pain for us to deal with that we, uh, you know, take them to shelters and, uh, and then they end up getting euthanized because they've got these problems we created. And so, you know, to me as, as awesome as dogs are, you know, I, I felt like, I started out, you know, wanting to, you know, wanting and caring about the people and, and making sure the dogs can take care of them, which I still do. Um, you know, but seeing how amazing these dogs are and, and human beings get the better end of the bargain unquestionably with them is that, you know, that they need an advocate, you know, and, and, you know, to me, just like with people and, you know, I mean, the level of fitness and, and nutrition that you, uh, adhere to is, is on, on a level I can't even try to comprehend. And, uh, you know, so, but it's the same way with, with dogs, you know, they need mental stimulation, they need good nutrition, they need good exercise, and they need all of that. Uh, you know, you can't just try to train your dog and, and never 
exercise them or mentally stimulate them and feed them crappy food and, and whatever. On the same token, you know, just like you can't eat your way out of bad training, you can't train your way out of a shitty diet. Dogs are the exact same way, you know, they, they need both. And so, uh, you know, that's why I've been so passionate about the online training uh, and the and the pet food and or the dog food and, and treats and supplements and stuff. So. So tell me about the Warrior Dog Foundation. So I'm sure all of this, because you were so passionate about that and, you know, you, you, it's, you know, we have, you were talking about the pound and how so many dogs get euthanized or, you know, it's just kind of like they, they lose their purpose or they don't have a purpose. So, uh, so what does the Warrior Dog Foundation do? So we, um, we act as, you know, primarily as a sanctuary for any, any dog in any working capacity for this country. Now that can be Department of Defense, you know, anything military related, it can be federal law enforcement, it can be local or state law enforcement, it can be Customs and Border Patrol, Secret Service, I mean, you name it. Um, and and it's, it's in any capacity where the dog gets to the point where that unit has made the decision that this dog is, has become such a liability to our guys that, that we're either going to euthanize them or they need to go somewhere else. Um, and that's where we step in and, and to avoid that dog being euthanized, we take them in and then we, uh, we do kind of a, a, a multi-prong approach where we, we take all of the information and kind of the turnover from them of saying, here's why the dog uh, is in this position. Here's the, whether it's bite history or behavioral history, we take all of that and then do our own kind of self-assessments in-house with multiple different uh, staff members um, and, and give the dog, you know, generally a couple of weeks to settle in and continue to evaluate them. And then we come up with a comprehensive, uh, you know, customized training and rehabilitation plan for each dog uh, at their own pace. And, th and then just work with them doing all those main th those key things is, you know, using primarily positive and, and food-based reinforcement and mo motivation-based training, uh, giving them really good, high-quality food, lots of exercise, sunlight, um, you know, and kind of letting them unwind and not asking much of them, just kind of letting them be a dog and blow off some steam and, and kind of get their mind right that way. And, and then slowly start to, to rehab them and work them and get them to the point where we can either adopt them out uh, to, you know, civilian private sector individual, or if they're young enough, uh, repurpose them and go to a different department that's maybe a little better set up training competency wise to handle a, a little stronger dog like that, which we've done a, a number of times, uh, you know, which is really neat to be able to take dogs that a, a one department was going to euthanize and then, you know, spend five, six, seven months with them and, and get them to where another department can now take them and put them back to work. So I was going to ask you, do, um, do a lot of the dogs that come through your program for the Warrior Dogs Foundation, um, is it because of age or is it because of behavioral issues? It's Normally. both. It's both. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, I will say to pick one, it's always behavioral. Sometimes mm. it's you know, like a fairly common scenario is, you know, this dog is, is a real nightmare to deal with, but him and his handler have an understanding and, and they can work together. Now this dog is nine, 10 years old and, and age-wise can't do the job anymore. This handler now is getting dog two and bringing him in. And now he has, no, he can't have both of them because, you know, the, the commitment is just too much. Nobody else wants to, or can take this dog. And so now you've got this nine, 10 year old dog that is pretty temperamental and hard to deal with that, that, you know, it's basically like if somebody doesn't take them that, you know, that can actually take them and, and work with them, uh, then we're just going to put them down. And they do that sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that's, that's again, why, why, or where we step in. Now, the other side of that coin is uh, in some instances, a dog may be two or three years old and, and between genetics and training and environment and all those things kind of coming together in a perfect storm, 
uh, an unfortunate perfect storm is that that dog gets to the point where, you know, he's bit several people he wasn't supposed to. And uh, the the department, the trainer, the handlers, you know, everybody kind of converges and, and makes the uh, community decision that uh, that this dog is is too big of a liability to continue mm-hmm. having uh, with the department, and so in, in those cases we we take them as well. Mm-hmm. I want to I want you to tell uh, the listeners um, a story. Do you have a story about a dog coming in like a like yeah. a yeah? Can you share a story and then replace sure. it? Sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know we had a a dog that um, well I, I share the story in my book, but. Um, there was one instance, it was a dog coming from the West coast, uh, seal canine program. And he was young. He was like two years old, 18, 20 months even. And, uh, the, the, it was on an American airlines flight and I went to go pick the dog up from the airport. And, uh, it was supposed to, he was supposed to come in at like four 30 and I got there at, you know, four o'clock and, and waited Four thirty rolls by four 45, five o'clock. I went to the desk. Nobody was there. And I kept waiting like two hours goes by and, and I'm just sitting in my, my car waiting and, uh, my phone rings. And as soon as I answer it, it's, it's an American airlines cargo employee screaming at me to come pick this crazy dog up. Um, and, and so I run in there and, and we go in there and there's like five or six cargo handler employees standing around this pallet with a, with a plastic crate. And, and the dog had eaten his way through the, mm. the corner of it and his head was sticking up out of the crate and he was snapping at everybody that came anywhere near him and they, they had no idea what to do with him. And so, uh, so I, I went in and, and managed to help him, you know, get, get the crate into the back of my vehicle. And we pushed it into the corner where, where that hole was. And, and then I used some cargo straps and tightened them down to, to keep it there. But, uh, that was about the longest hour and a half trip, uh, from home from the airport thinking I've got this, you know, velociraptor in the back that if he manages to, to get free, it's going to look like the scene from aliens where the, where the face is right there while I'm driving. So, um, and, and there's, there's tons of stories like that. I mean, dogs that, you know, that, that we've got them working and there was, there was one in, in particular that there was an armadillo to give you an idea of, of how, uh, capable these dogs are. There was a, a big armadillo here in Texas in summertime running the fence line of our training area and, and the dog, was loose. We were, you know, playing ball with it. He saw the armadillo. He ran after it, went and grabbed the armadillo and picked it up right in the middle, tilted his head back and just kind of like opened his mouth a few times and got in the back of his molars and then just, just snapped it in half. Oh, I mean, that's an armadillo, you know, and that's an armadillo. Like that's not yeah. an easy thing to do. Um, you know, so, and, and there's, you know, just countless stories of, of stuff like that, that, uh, you know, dogs do some pretty, pretty wild stuff. Today's show is brought to you by 10,000. They make some of the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable training shorts in the game. I gave my husband Blue some of their tactical shorts. This is the ultimate combination of durability, mobility, versatility, and the interval short, which is the most versatile short perfect for any workout. The tactical short was developed and tested with over 50 special ops members who put it to the test by rucking, swimming, lifting, and just all around beating it up, producing the ultimate tough workout shorts. The interval short is their most versatile style, perfect for gym days, spinning, short runs, and backyard workouts. They both have great features like permanent anti-odor protection, an optional liner that is very comfortable, and prevents chafing. It's a four-way stretch and breathable and lightweight 
shell fabric. I can definitely attest to these shorts. Not only do they look good, uh, he has amazing legs anyways, very muscular, uh, but he wears these shorts when we're running down the beach. Uh, he does tend to get chafing at times because he has the big tree trunk, strong legs, uh, and they prevent the chafing. So these are awesome pair of shorts that you can uh, buy it from yourself or you can buy them for... Um, for your husband, for your boyfriend, um, whoever. So at the heart of 10,000 is a stoic dedication to continuous improvement, every day faster, every day stronger, every day better than yesterday. They don't believe in overnight success, miracle drugs, cure-alls, quick fixes, or shortcuts. They believe in grit, tenacity, and grinding. 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off of your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc reborn15 to receive 15% off of your purchase. That is 10,000.cc slash reborn15 to get 15% off. And even my boys who are getting really into sports, as you guys know, if you follow me on social media, uh, even they, some of their tops and stuff, they're, 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 they fit so well and they're so comfortable. Um, Cash, my middle boy, is really, really into it. Even though the tops are a little bit bigger for him right now, he just loves the way that they feel. And I guess probably the way that they look, but more, you know, more so the way that they feel whenever he's doing all the athletic stuff um, from playing football, to playing on the beach. So definitely check these uh, this apparel line out. It's really, really high quality, guys. I have felt this. I've given it as gifts to Blue. Uh, my boys love it. Um, I even have one of their sweatshirts, uh, and it's one of the most comfortable sweatshirts that I own. So check them out. Thank you, 10,000, for sponsoring today's Reborn podcast. So the the dog at the airport um, did did he have a name? Yeah, he and and uh, it's uh, Spot. I want to know like what like where did he did he where did he go? Do you still have this dog? So he actually is still alive. We had him for about <laughs> seven years, six seven oh. years. Um, he he destroyed a, um, a a metal gas grill, like chewed it up. Uh, he's chewed rebar up. Uh, you know, we've had um, like the the four four quart stainless steel water pails that you clip mm-hmm. to clip to the door. Like he, he ripped that off and chew it up. And uh, I ripped his door off of his, uh, his guillotine door off of the, uh, separating part from, uh, from front to back. Um, I mean, like we couldn't have even the Coranda metal elevated dog beds. Like he'd chew those up. Uh, he had a, a con- concrete water bowl. Does this guy have any teeth? His nickname should be toothless. Yeah. Does he have any teeth or the <laughs> not, not really anymore. They're, they're pretty worn down, but he's, he's still, still alive. He's actually with a, with an employee of mine, oh. uh, in Florida that, uh, you know, he, he lives with him. So he's to, to give you an idea. I mean, it took seven years to get there, but, uh, but he, he got there and, and is uh, living a good life now. So that's awesome. What is something that's really surprised you about canines and being in this field? And I think it doesn't really matter like what breed or um, what have you, but what is something that's just really, you know, has just surprised you? To me, it's the, it's all dogs ability to, to be present, you know? Um, and, and it's something that I think it's it's really difficult for human beings to to take a page out of that book. We think about the past, we, we worry about the future, 
Um, you know, and, and dogs are, are so right now, you know, they're, they're not holding grudges. They're not thinking about tomorrow that they, they do such a, an amazing job at just focusing on what's happening right this second. And, uh, and to me, that's one of the most amazing things. I, when I do speaking engagements that have to do with dogs, I, I like to start out with a joke that, uh, that kind of highlights that. And it's, uh, if you want to know who loves you more, your wife or your dog, lock both of them in the trunk of your car for two hours. And when you come back and pop it open, who's happier to see you. And, uh, you know, it, all jokes aside, it, it's a good, uh, kind of a good indicator of, of legitimately just how, how their mind works and how they, how they think. Mm-hmm. So with all the dogs that you're, that you, that you train and that you're working with, you also do protection canines. I do. Uh, I was just going to ask, like, in addition to that question, who is, who is a good candidate for protection canines? I, I would say my most, uh, common client and, and probably the best candidate is, or, or are um, families that have, you know, a high net worth individual in the family. And then everybody else is, is kind of in support of that and, and generally stays home. And that individual is, is gone a lot uh, on business. That's for sure. My most common client, um, you know, there are the, the A-list types and, and the household name folks, but, but generally um, folks in those industries aren't, aren't great fits for for that you know a super dynamic lifestyle is is not great uh you know for these dogs unless you know you're really really dialed in you know with the dogs and and maybe if it's just you and the dog you know little kids and other pets and and stuff it's good to have a a pretty routine uh you know normal environment for them but but that's overwhelmingly uh the deal is that you know they they have you know a fair bit of money and and cause for concern in terms of people trying to, to separate them from that money or mess with their family or, uh, or what have you, and, and just gives them that extra level of, of protection to, uh, uh, to accommodate that. And, you know, the, the reality of it is it's a tax write off from a security standpoint for a lot of those folks too. So, um, you know, and it just, it, it augments their lifestyle pretty well. Um, if somebody is thinking about getting a protection canine for themselves or for their family, what are some what are some things that uh, like some information that you think that they need to know prior to having a protection canine? The, the, the two biggest things I would say is is realize that no matter how much training the dog has, and this is it's the same with like competition horses or, or what have you, you know the training is there. You still have to be able to to, to do it to handle the dog, and and that takes some, some practice. Now you don't have to be a professional dog handler, but it does take work. You know, I would say a lot of times when folks that are in that kind of tax bracket buy things, you know, they're willing to pay whatever it costs to, to limit inconvenience. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and the reality of it is, is, is that when you're adding a dog, even though the training is there and, and, you know, I'll come and deliver the dog and spend several days, you know, getting them accustomed, there's, there's still work involved in it, uh, which kind of dovetails into the second point, which is, and you probably realize this, uh, you know, early on is that in that first, you know, few days to few weeks, it's common for the dog to not really listen to you very well and, and to be figuring out who you are and, uh, and kind of what the the right and left flank is of the of the new living environment, and, and realize that I can't explain to the dog that this is your new home, this is your new owner. You need to listen and respect mm-hmm. these people, you know. And, and the way I, I tend to look at it is a, a truly you know good protection dog shouldn't listen to a, a total stranger mm-hmm. the second you hand, hand them the leash, you know. Mm-hmm. So expect that now it's not going to take six months of the dog totally blowing you off. 
but he's going to look at you a little bit sideways, you know, that first couple of days and, and it's going to take some time to kind of break, uh, break him into to the new family and routine and environment and all that. But, uh, you know, th- those are really the two biggest things. I mean, outside of that, you know, I, I would say, generally speaking, the dogs have a lot of regular pet-like qualities. Uh, they have some that are very different, uh, obviously, from pets, uh, and, you, and you have to understand what those differences are, um, you know, and, and make make accommodations for them. But um, th- those are the biggest things, I think. Uh, whenever I I got Cadman, um, and I, I his name's Cadman, but I call him Bones is his nickname. Um, I remember I was like, I was so scared. Uh, like when I, like it was just the handover was super short. I didn't know what I was doing. I actually, I didn't know anything about dogs. And I remember I, I slept with him in my bed with his leash on, uh, with like his leash around my wrist, because I was like, I don't know like what this dog, like I was just, I was so intimidated. And the reason why, you know, I'm really into training my canines. And the reason why is because like, I, I had to, like, I had to figure out how to be out. Like I had to be alpha over my dogs. And I knew like walking into the situation with, with Cadman, I was like, I was inferior to him. I was intimidated. And I realized that in order for me to be a better handler for him, uh, to be a, his leader, that I had to educate myself and learn like all about the canine world. So that's kind of how I just threw myself in there and learning just from all types of resources and, and people like you of putting out information and content uh, to where I can, I mean, I still don't know what I'm doing. And I find that like, sometimes I'll just like look at my dogs or like I'll watch them and I'll be like, like I'm, I'm really into like learning the psychology of a dog, like why they do certain things or like why they reacted a certain way. And, uh, but it's so fascinating. And yeah, um, I'm in like this weird space because I, I'm not a canine handler. Like I, I work with these two a lot. Um, but I'm really, really passionate about training dogs, especially these dogs. And what, um, what I want people to understand is that, you know, people see me with my canines and that they, they think that they want to get a Belgian Malinois or they think they want to get like a, a working canine or what have you. And they need to know that it's a huge responsibility it's a yeah. huge responsibility. And I didn't, I didn't just get the dog and like, never, like I had to learn how, how to be a handler for him. Like every single day we train every single day, I put time and effort, um, not only into these dogs, but I, I have to educate myself and I have to learn, um, sure. before it can go down the leash. So I think that, um, I just think that's something, you know, I've, I've had a couple instances over the past couple of years where, People who have followed me, they've gotten a dog, like a Belgian Malinois from, you know, I, I don't know who, it doesn't matter, but they've, they've ended up being like really bad. Like it just, it wasn't good. And now they have this dog that's like causing destruction. And they're like, I just wanted like, you know, your dogs are so well behaved all the time. And it's like, well, yeah, because you have to put a lot of time into it. You have to invest into your dog. Yeah. I mean, without question, you know, I mean, getting any dog is, is responsibility and work and, and is adding a family member, um, you know, getting a, a working dog obviously ups that Annie and, um, you know, expands on that responsibility, uh, exponentially be, because of what they're capable of. And, 
you know, some of it is, is training. Uh, a lot of it from my perspective as, as on the other side of that token is, is selection, mm. you know, and, and that's where, um, you know, the, the trainer or the, the purveyor, the vendor, whatever you want to call them, the, the, the company that's providing that dog, um, you know, it, it's really on, on them to, to find the right fit for, for that environment. And it's tough. Mm. Uh, it's very tough. And, and, you know, talking about the buying trips, you know, sourcing, these kind of unicorns, you know, that, that don't really make sense. You've got, you know, a dog that's mentally and physically genetically and training wise strong enough to defeat a grown man who's intent on hurting him, not scared uh, and, and capable of doing so. You got to have a pretty special dog to deal with, with somebody like that on the transverse that the, the dog that's capable of doing all of those things now also, you know, needs to understand what's worth worrying about with kids or with other pets, you know, like that dog generally is not going to take a lot of shit from anybody, you know, including a handler, if, if they're capable of doing all that. And so finding that happy medium of, of enough dog to do the work, but not so much to where they're going to run the owner out of their home is, is a tricky part of the industry. And I think, you know, from a price standpoint, you know, that's where most of it comes from is, is the, the expertise and, and, time that it takes to, to where you can really source and identify that ideal candidate for, for, you know, different applications. You know, the dog that I find for say, a a couple in their fifties that, that have kids that are out of the house and they're active and, and they live on a, you know, a, a ranch in Montana versus, you know, a, a husband and wife that are in maybe their early thirties that have toddlers that live in suburban Denver. Uh, I'm not going to pick the exact same dog for, for both of those people, you know, just because, Oh, it's a two-year-old dog and it looks good and it can do bite work and has obedience. And so, yeah, let's bring that in. Like there are so many other little things that I'm going to do in the selection process testing wise to see temperamentally, is this dog the right fit for, for that particular client? And, and I think, um, you know, that, that saves a lot of people, a lot of trouble. The problem is, is just like with most things is that people are like, well, I can get a dog from you for this price, or I can spend, you know, a fraction of that with this guy. And, and like with most things, you tend to get what you pay for. And, and, uh, you know, that, that sets people up down, down the path, especially so if they're like, well, you know, I'll just get a puppy and I'll, I'll do it myself. I had dogs growing up, you know, to me, that's akin to, to watching, you know, a, a, a stonemason crew come brick a chimney in your house and say, well, shit, I can do that. I'll just buy the bricks and I'll do it myself and, and save me 10 grand. Like it, it's going to look like you did it. It's going to look like shit, you know? So, um, you know, raising dogs while it's not rocket science, it's technical enough. And, and as you've learned over the last couple of years, you know, that the timing component of when to reinforce or provide consequence or, uh, or being able to read a dog and know exactly what, what to do and when and all that, just takes practice and, and a level of expertise that, that you're not going to just have because you grew up with a couple of dogs, you know, but how did you, did you have a mentor growing up? Like, or just with the, not growing up, like when you started getting into the dogs, like, how did you, how did you learn everything that you. No, I, I just, I was born knowing all of it. And you know, <laughs> it, uh, I, I've been, I've been really, really lucky that, that I've had a, a, a number of really, really brilliant mentors and, and friends that, when, from when I first started out to, to even up until now, uh, I've, I've just been very fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of brilliant folks that, um, you know, that, that taught me, um, you know, what, what I know and, and who I am as a, as a dog trainer and, and dog person uh, today, you know, so some of it is learning the hard way and, and figuring things out, you know, just like with say working out, you know, trainers, 
vary trainer to trainer and what works for one may not work for another and things. So there is some of a kind of a path that you need to figure out on your own over, over years of, of working with dogs. But, but so much of it can be learned from, from people that have already walked that path. And, and I think, um, you know, it's, it's important to, to surround yourself with really, really capable folks and, and just pay really close attention and learn from them. And, and I, I absolutely learned a ton from a lot of people. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the credit goes to them. Do you have a favorite, uh, dog breed? Um, not really. I, I mean, I, I, there's a, a lot of breeds that I like, but I, I'm a huge proponent of just from, from my experience, I, I've seen phenomenal examples. I mean, consummate textbook examples of every breed. And I've seen horrible representations, uh, individually of every breed. So, uh, I mean, of, of course I, I prefer Malinois and, and Dutch shepherds and, and German shepherds, but I, I love pit bulls. I love catch dogs. I love bird dogs. I, I love, uh, small terriers, yag terriers, Patterdale terriers, um, you know, even some Jack Russells, if they're from strong working lines. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess the common denominator with all of those are, are if they're a strong purpose built working breed that, that has a, a level of, of augmentation to mankind outside of just being a companion. Mm-hmm. then then i like them you know if they're you know their their structure is is sound and and they're they're genetically uh you know strong and capable in all the the working areas that you would typically select for whatever that working purpose is then then i am a fan of them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh what what would you say is the biggest mistake that handlers make or like new handlers i guess sure if you've seen any of my stuff what would you say the biggest mistake that uh, that I've made even. So there, there's two things that kind of go hand in hand. I think one is letting your dogs inter- interrupt in interviews. That's the big thing. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I, I think that the two biggest things, uh, one, you can certainly identify with, you know, in, in working out and eating clean is the consistency thing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and especially early on is that when you're, when you're trying to shape behavior and teach dogs, basic fundamental foundational stuff, just like with weight training or jujitsu or, or shooting is that every single repetition that you do early on needs to be exactly perfect and, and coached and watched and, and tweaked. If, you know, imagine say, say Olympic lifting or, you know, more dynamic technical exercises that you do. If, if you show a client how to do that one time and then say, okay, now go home and practice practice yourself for two weeks and then come back and we'll try it again. You, you know what you're going to walk back into in two weeks, right? It's going to be a train wreck. And so it, it's kind of that same thing as people are inconsistent. You know, they'll, they'll do a training session with a dog and, and teach eye contact and, and downing and recalling and, and healing and things like that. And then they'll go back inside and the dog's off leash, jumping on the couch and getting on the table and running out the front door and taking 12 steps back because they're not consistent with it. So you've got to control that dog's environment to a T that's number one. Number two uh, and this is the the big point on the theoretical side uh, or the methodology side is, is the way a dog thinks. It, it's very difficult for human beings to, to even begin to wrap their mind around the way that a dog thinks as it relates to our, our mind. We use logic and reasoning and we have an internal monologue. If you think about, you know, your two dogs as an example, j- just think about the simple statement that neither one of them has ever thought anything in a language. Right. It's, it's hard to imagine that. Right. Like you think of things in, an, in, in a language like you have a voice in your head that's talking through things. 
with them, that does not exist. Everything with them is A plus B equals C. So they're making a simple association with everything. That's good, that's bad, that's neutral. So which highlights why it's so important to be consistent is that if we're grabbing a leash as an example, you know, a lot of times you grab a leash and the dog spins around jumping up and down to the point where it, it can actually become a problem where a dog is so excited when you grab a leash that it's hard to put the leash on and they become, you know, almost manic about it. Well, that that's a, an inadvertently created A plus B equals C formula that, that you've uh, imposed on the dog. You know, A is grabbing the leash. B is connecting it to the dog's neck equals C. We go for a walk. When A plus B equals C enough times in that same formula, now the mere presence of A equals the anticipation of C, right? B cannot even exist. And so the, the beauty of that is, is, okay, now I realize how I just created this problem in my dog. Well, I can work in reverse to erase that problem in the dog. So now I, I want to make A plus B not equal C enough times to where he stops anticipating it. So I grab the leash. I clip it a few times. I click it to his collar. I take it back off. I hang it up and I sit down. And now the dog's like, what the fuck just happened? Right. The the dog's mind is blown because now the math formula that that he knows now isn't true anymore. And so now it's, I wrap the leash around my my waist. I go make a sandwich. I clip it to his neck. I set it down and and then we don't go for a walk again. And so, you know, now you, you think of it like a piggy bank with positive and negative coins. You're putting enough coins into that mental piggy bank of the dog's head uh, to, to erase that formula and, and stop making and anticipate that, that particular outcome. Dude, this is awesome information. It's like so simple and basic. And in fact, like I've never even thought of it like that, but like my dogs do the same thing. I walk to the door where we go outside to the beach and it's yep. like, anytime I walk to the door, it's just like two just, they just sprint to the door because yeah. I think it's time to go out and to train. And then sometimes I'll just be like walking by. I'm like, guys, chill out. I'm not going outside. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so think about how you teach a dog to, to sit or, or even just make eye contact, right. Which is really the first thing that I like to do to bond with a dog is I feed them through training. So I'll first get a dog in, I'll, I'll take whatever their daily rations are and I'll put it in a tub and set it on top of their crate. Every time I get them out and I keep them in the crate unless I'm training them all the time for that first couple of weeks. Now that means I have to get them out all the time, but you know, I put the, the pouch in, I grab a handful of food, leash clicker, connect the leash, and then we'll just go sit there and I'll stand there and ignore the dog. I won't say anything to him. The second his eye contact makes, or his eye is contact mine. I click and I give them some food and then I just stand there. I may even turn around, walk away, uh, what have you. And I do that over and over and over. So what I'm teaching him is that, Hey, every time your eyes meet mine, you get fed, right? So it's that same exact principle that where the inadvertent part comes in is that the only time you're grabbing the leash and putting it on his collar is when you go outside. So now when you do that, it's, it's teaching him that formula that, well, yeah, of course, if you're grabbing the collar, it comes here and then we go for a walk. And so, you know, it, it's, it's taught the exact same way. You just don't realize you're doing it, but that, that tells you one, how important consistency is. And two, that, that if it can be trained, it can be untrained. Mm, I love that. Really, really good information. So you have yeah. food, right? I do. You have dog food, you have treats, you have yep. supplements. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. If you, yeah. So if, if you go to Mike, yeah. get yeah. what, what all do you have and where can people find you at? So if you go on uh, just uh, MikeRitlandCo.com uh, or just Google my name, it, it should be the first result that comes up. There's there's online training. 
Um, there is dog food, uh, and, and it's something that we've uh, spent years kind of refining and getting the formula dialed in. I highly recommend it to everybody. Obviously, I feed all my own dogs it's the same stuff. What is the supplement? Yeah. Uh, the, the supplements are a hip and joint formula, a mm. digestive formula, and a skin and coat formula. Uh, and similarly, all my dogs get all of them. All the retired dogs get get that same stuff. So uh, the treats are also just chunked up, dehydrated, uh, whatever it is, whether it's salmon or beef or turkey. There's no fillers. There's no grains. There's there's not, none of that crap in it. So mm. no preservatives. It's just uh, super clean stuff, all of it. Mm. That's awesome. I'm going to check all of that out. I was giving my dogs CBD, like a salmon CBD. Um, but yeah. they haven't been getting that. Uh, a, a lot of people ask me, um, what do I train my dogs with? I just train every once in a while. I use, um, like hot dogs, like uh, little hot dog slices because that's like a yeah. really super high valued reward. But I just train yeah. my dogs with just dog food, like little pieces yeah. of kibble. And they, I mean, they love it. They have such a yeah. high food drive, high ball drive. And so, um, yeah. well, and not to interrupt, but one quick thing that, that I think a lot of people are like, well, yeah, you know, these dogs that are high drive and they're, you know, super food motivated. That's great for them. What about my dog that, that won't, you know, doesn't care about food or treats. They all will. It's a primary reinforcer. And so you, you don't, and, and the people think, well, yeah, if you starve the dog, you don't have to starve a dog. Yeah. Uh, you know, all you have to do is, is take their food and, and they get it when they do what you want. So mm -hmm. they may not eat for that first day or two very quickly. The dog is going to realize every time I look at that mom or dad, I get fed. So I'm going to start mm -hmm. doing that. So you're not feeding them any more or any less, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same amount of food that they would get in any given day. It's just spread out throughout the day. And it's when they make eye contact or when they lay down or when they stop barking, uh, you know, or they don't pull on the leash, you know, little, little things like that, where it's just that a plus B equals C take your dog for a walk. And every time he stops pulling Mark, you get to eat, you know, you're feeding your dog on a walk. You're, you're not punishing them. You're not providing even, even any consequences other than that you're, you're withholding a primary reinforcer until they do what you want. And, uh, and it works mm -hmm. wonders. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good way to simplify, to simplify it because I think people look at dog training and, and they can, it can seem like a little overwhelming, like not knowing where to start. But whenever yeah. I got Raven, um, she wasn't really, I wasn't planning on getting another dog. She wasn't planned. She would just kind of, it just kind of happened. And yeah. so I, I want to say for the first, like probably several months, the only way she got her dog food was if I was individually feed, I didn't give her a bowl of dog food. Her, yeah. she would get hand fed by me by doing just basic, simple stuff, kind of like what you were describing. Yeah. So, um, little simple things like that. And I think it can just really increase the, the bond that you have with your dog. If you just take the it's time. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's uh, it's really, really valuable, not just for you, but, um, you know, for the dog as well. So they really, really thrive, uh, with Absolutely. that. So, well, thank you so much for coming on to the report podcast with me. Um, yeah. I, uh, I definitely want to check out like the supplements that you have for the dogs. Yeah, I'll, I, um, I'll send you some. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would love that. That would be super awesome. So is there anything else that you want to leave like with the, with the listeners? Do you have any events coming up? Any events or any, anything coming up? Uh, when, when you, when you come to Texas and come on the show, that'll be an event. <gasps> ah, the, yeah, uh, I know. I can't wait. I want to, yeah. we're going to make it happen. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, I, I don't, I, I mean, right now I'm, I'm just focusing on all that stuff and, uh, and staying pretty, pretty head down focused on all that. So, um, you know, that's, that's been, uh, been the primary, primary stuff going on, but. Cool. Well, I want to come out there. Can I bring bones and Raven? I'd be disappointed if you didn't. Okay. Well, I'll bring them. Maybe I'll just bring the whole family, you know? You, you, sh you should. There's we'll a camp out. There, there's a full, a full couch uh, for for the guests. So the dogs can be there. The fam is, there's a, a, a visitor 
uh, couch on the side of the studio. So everybody, everybody will be taken care of. Gotcha. Appreciate it. All right, Mike, thank you so much for coming on today on the, on the reborn podcast. Really great to finally connect. And, uh, man, you are just, you are just at it. And it's so impressive to see everything that you have done in such a short amount of time. So, um, keep at it and, um, really, really thankful to, to kind of have you here in my network. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And well, hopefully I'll see uh, you in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast with Mike Rutland. So many amazing things. It, it, listening to, to canine handlers and training dogs, I am so incredibly inspired every single time. And it makes me just want to go out and learn more things, be about the dogs, and to be just a better handler um, for my canines. And I hope that listening to this podcast, it inspires you to know that truly our dogs' capabilities and, and what they can truly achieve and their confidence, uh, it's up to us. Uh, it's up to us to instill that confidence within them uh, and to be a voice for them whenever, you know, they, they're at the root of who they are, they're just dogs, but they are capable of so much. So give your dog the love and the attention that it deserves. And I wish more humans were like dogs. All right, guys, thank you for joining me uh, on the Reborn Podcast today. Make sure you leave us a review on the Apple Podcast. Tell your friends about the show. And I will catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye.